I don't think management is a secret thing you do to people. So you don't secretly thank people as a way to manipulate them or whatever. You know, I, I think it would be absolutely fine to say to your team, I'm going to try and be a good boss and I'm going to try and thank you regularly for good things you've done. And I'm going to really, I really, I'm going to really mean it, you know, and I do think you're great, but I don't always tell you. So I'm going to try and tell you from now on. And I think absolutely it shouldn't be a secret thing that you do. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm chatting with Chris Croft. Uh, Chris is a writer, a keynote speaker, a bit of a guru on project management, time management, negotiation skills. He's got some courses, online courses for those specialist subject. He also teaches leadership and I suppose has a sideline on teaching other people to be trainers as, as his legacy project, I guess. Today we're chatting about the differences between management and leadership and what the key elements are of, of those jobs, why they're different, and how delegation is absolutely critical, how some people find it difficult, how some people find it impossible. But if it could be learnt, what do you need to do to master delegation? So a great conversation with Chris about, about those topics. I really enjoyed chatting to Chris today. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it. Cheers. Hi, I'm Chris Croft, and I'm delighted to be on this podcast with Dominic. Um, what would you like to know, Dominic? What do you do? What did I do? Well, what do you do? What did you do? Oh, yeah. Um, well, there are three things I do at the moment, really. And my, what I call my day job is I run training courses. So okay. I drive around the country or during COVID times, I do Zoom training. Um, and I talk to smallish groups of people, sort of five to 20, about things like project management and time management mainly but also a bit of negotiating and sales training and leadership. So subjects like that. So I, I run training courses, usually for half a day or a day. But actually during COVID, I've got quite into doing them over Zoom um, an hour at a time. And I actually think maybe the best way to learn is one hour at a time. Because a whole day is a lot of stuff to take in, isn't it? So I think there is something to be said for an hour of Zoom once a week, a sort of drip feed, a weekly hour of Zoom. So I'm thinking post-COVID, I might carry on just doing Zoom hours or a mixture of uh -huh. that and going to see people for a day. So my day job is that. But there are two other things I do. And one of them is I record video courses on things like project management and time management and negotiating. And I stick them on udemy.com and on LinkedIn Learning. So if you've got LinkedIn Learning, you can watch me on there. If you haven't, you have to buy them on Udemy for 10 quid a time. 
But 10 quid to get a whole sales course or a negotiating course, why would you not? And then I get three quid. So that's great. Uh, but don't feel sorry for me because I sell loads of them. Um, and then the third thing I'm doing, so there's the day job of training. There's online courses I've been making. Um, and then the third thing I'm doing is I'm coaching other people into how to be a trainer. So I've got a little gang of 15 people now who are becoming trainers. So I'm teaching them how to be self-employed, how to write a training course, how to sell a training course, how to deliver a really good training course. And just generally, sort of how to be me, only better, is what I think of it as. So I've sort of, I've written down everything I've learned in 20 years of being a trainer, all the stupid mistakes I've made, like not charging enough or whatever. I've written it all down and I've got this sort of coaching program I'm doing. And once a week we have a group call and we'll chat about stuff and we have a Slack group where we discuss things. And if any listeners want to become a trainer, Get, get in touch. Just go to SuccessfulTrainers.com. So that's the third thing I'm doing, and I'm, I'm really actually enjoying that. That's probably the most fun of the three. But how did you – so you've been a trainer for 20 years. What, what were you doing before that, before you ended up self-employed? Well, one of the things I'm fascinated by is careers because careers are so random, aren't they? And you just sort of fall into a job and, um, and then you sort of put up with it for years, even though you hate it. And you, your choice of career is the most important thing you could ever do. I mean, I don't know how you got into sales. It's probably a total accident. So what happened was that at school, I was quite good at maths and physics just because everything else required remembering things, really, you know, like. I don't know, chemistry, you have to remember what reacts with what and history, you have to remember stuff, don't you? And, or, or, you know, French, you have to remember whether a table is male or female or ridiculous. <laughs> and so with, with maths, you just, if you understand it, that's it, you got it. So I remember thinking, I want to go to university because that's just one big party. And I was right about that. And I remember thinking, what subject shall I do at university? And engineering just seemed to be the obvious one because it's good for your career. If you're an engineer, you can do, there's plenty of jobs around. And whereas, you know, something like pure physics, you've got to be really clever. Plus research, there's not that many jobs. Whereas engineering, bound to be jobs. So I just thought I'll do engineering. And that's what I did. And I didn't like it at all. <laughs> it was, um, it was just really detaily and sort of picky. And I remember my first day at Westlands, uh, I, I, so my first job was at Westland Helicopters down in Yeovil. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to designing some helicopters. So I thought, <laughs> seriously, I thought in the first week, I'll, I'll just do a normal one. I'll get my eye in, you know. And then the next week, I'll do a double-decker. That'll be good. Third week, I'll do a really fast one. I think fourth week, I'll do one shaped like a fish. And I literally thought I would just be designing helicopters. And, and I discovered it takes 10 years for 300 people to design a helicopter. And I just thought, sod that. You know, I, I just thought, what, 10 years? You've got to be joking, 10 years. And apparently by the time you get to your third helicopter, so this is after 30 years when you're 50, you might be in charge of the back wheel. You know, right. and I remember just thinking, I'm just not doing this. And um, so being an engineer, I, I've got huge respect for engineers, by the way, because they've created everything in the world. And a lot of my friends are engineers and they're really nice people and everything, but I just was never suited to the detail, the patience required. 
So I escaped out into management. I thought, if I'm a manager, I can actually make a difference. Because at Westlands, everything was crazy back then. Everything was late. You know, when they tried to build the helicopters, they never had the right parts. And it was just, everything was just useless. And I just thought, if I could be a manager, I could sort this out. I've got this sort of overwhelming drive to sort things out. I think that's why I like doing training and why I like recording these video courses, because I want to just try to nail a subject, you know, try to really uh-huh. understand the subject and boil it down into its essence and then show it to people. So I tried to sort of boil Westlands down into its essence and sort it out, which was clearly impossible. But anyway, and so I just was a manager for years running factories. But I realized after a while that that is actually also futile because all you can do is sort out a factory. It probably takes about three years to sort a factory out, if you're lucky, if everything's on your side. So you've got a good boss and it's actually doable because some, some of them were impossible and some went really well. And after a while, I just, I just started thinking, I'm sick of doing this. And, and I was about 35 and I had this sort of sudden vision of maybe a factory every five years. So another 30 years, that's six more factories until I you know, become old and senile and six more factories, which probably already exist somewhere out there. I've got to go and sort them out. And I just thought, I don't want to do that. It's not fun anymore. And um, I guess that was a midlife crisis. I, I just thought, I don't want to do this job my whole life, sort out yet another factory. And the trouble with sorting factories out is that nobody thanks you. So the people working in there think that you've got it in for them, don't they? which you haven't actually. You're trying to give them job security and make the place profitable. And then your boss just wants you to do more. And the salespeople keep selling stuff that's impossible to make in very small quantities. And, and, <laughs> and the designers keep designing stuff that's impossible to make. And in the end, you just think, I'm having to constantly fight to do this job. And I don't want to do it. So at the time, I was wondering what on earth to do, and I had two really horrible bosses in a row. So the final boss I had, I worked for Dolphin Packaging in Poole. But he was the most horrible boss. Um, I don't know whether we can talk about it on a podcast or whether you want to, but, but anyway, it was just really the final straw. I, you know, in a way, I want to thank him, actually, because it was the final straw, and I just thought, right, I'm never doing this again. I'm not going to run the factory ever again. And I just thought, what else can I do? And I remember being almost panicky, really, thinking, I have no other skills. I know how to run a factory, but I can't even unblock a toilet. You know, I can't even work as a plumber or a... And don't, I'm not locking plumbers. I mean, thank goodness for plumbers. Do you know what I mean? But I just thought, I don't have any skills. I don't know anything. I've got a Cambridge degree in engineering, but I don't even know how my car works, you know? And so I was feeling a little bit panicky, wondering what on earth to do, when my, my next-door neighbour, who I didn't even like, actually, for reasons I could go into if you want, um, <laughs> n- not involving my wife, per se, but he, he came round and he said, Chris, 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 I know you're uh, between jobs at the moment, and look at this. This is the perfect job for you. There's a job as a lecturer for Bournemouth University. You'd be great at that. And I said to him, but I don't have a teaching qualification. He said, oh, you don't need that for a lecturer. That's just for teachers. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, yeah, ring them up, check. So I did. So I rang up Bournemouth University and I said, I'd like to be a lecturer, but I'm not a qualified teacher. And they went, that's fine. Doesn't matter. Have you got a degree? Oh, Cambridge. Yeah. Come on down and be interviewed. So I went to the interview and got the job. And to my amazement, I was given a job 
as a university lecturer working for the business school. So I was teaching operations yeah. management, which is what I'd been doing in these factories. And it very quickly became obvious they wanted people to teach on the MBA program, but they also wanted to people to teach local companies about operations management. And they also wanted people to teach local companies about things like leadership and time management and negotiating. And we were charging local companies a thousand quid a day. And then I was doing a hundred days a year, but I was paid 20 grand. This was 20 years ago. I was on 20. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, I'm doing a hundred days a year and I'm being paid 20 grand. So they're paying me 200, but we're charging the customers a thousand. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. And I remember thinking, I could do this myself as a sort of a freelance person and maybe charge like 500 or 600. And if I did 100 days a year, I'd be on 50 or 60K, which was like dream money. And I remember thinking, I, could I do this self-employed? Because it was all just me doing it. You know, I would turn up to Siemens Plessy or Marconi or somebody and do a day on leadership and be paid a thousand quid, but only 200 would come to me and the rest went to the university. Um, and I remember just thinking, I could just do this myself. And obviously, you'd have to do the selling and, I, and I'm fascinated by selling because I think it's such an underrated thing. And I'm not just saying that because you're in the selling game, but I just think <laughs> to be self-employed, you've, you've got to be able to do something and sell it, haven't you? That's, that's it. Yes. And there's lots of people who can sell, but they don't have a thing that they can do. So they sell for other people. Nothing wrong with that. And then there's lots of people who can do something like, you know, design stuff or write software or something but they can't sell and i think i actually think it's fear of selling that stops people go self-employed and and i'm thinking you know just don't be frightened of it learn it just go on a training course get a coach wherever however you learn about read books on it go to udemy whatever but just learn about selling because if you, once you've overcome your fear of selling and it's easy and it's fun and it's a great game then you can go self-employed you know you can do it I'm intrigued because you say it's a game. It is a game. Uh, yeah. I, I, and, and I think it's a game. And, and one of the things that I find interesting, if I'm, you know, if I'm doing a session for some clients around sales, quite often, I mean, I did, I did some work for a corporate finance house, you know, all ex big four accountants. Yeah. And I said to them, so sales, do you want to learn how to sell? And they, they were physically repulsed by the whole idea of selling. You know, they, <laughs> Do you think it was beneath they, them? Well, no, they, they, it, when, I say, when, you, when I said sales to them, I said, when I say sales, what do you think? And they went, estate agent, second-hand yeah, car dealer, dodgy, slimy, sleazy. Yeah, it's got the worst ever recommendation. I mean, uh, reputation. And that's just crazy. As you know, I have such a belief in this. I even persuaded my one and only son and heir, Miles, to get into selling. Because he's always been kind of good at persuading me to do stuff from an early age. And I've always said, you should do sales as your job. And I think it's the most brilliant career. It's really well paid. You're always in demand. Endlessly, people are offering him jobs because he can do sales. And, you know, you don't need a degree. You don't need to be, have a talent for maths. You can just be a normal person. You can learn it. You can do it. And why would you not? And, and every company in the world could could make more if they sold more you know or if you can't it's a great problem to have just buy another machine or you know what i mean so every company the limiting factor is how much they can sell so selling is the most important thing in every company in the world 
And and yet it's got this reputation of being a bit of a, mm, it's not a proper job, and mm, those, those people who do that are dodgy. And that's ridiculous. So my definition of selling that I've made up is, make, <laughs> you're looking forward to this, aren't you? <laughs> it's making new friends and helping them. And uh, I made that up as a sort of bit of a joke, but I've come to believe it, actually. I honestly think that selling is making new friends and helping them. So, you know, if somebody says to me, we need some help, tra- we need some training, you know, I say, what's it about? And they say, well, you know, our salespeople are hopeless, let's say. I, I see it as, can I help them? And, and as, when I help them, they become my friend and we work on it together and we have a laugh and we do it and it works and it's great. And so my customers have become friends mostly. I mean, some of them probably only pretend to like me. I don't know. Um, but I've got, I've got customers who've invited me to Christmas parties and weddings even and things, you know. So I honestly think that a good customer should be a friend. And if you don't like a customer, really, you shouldn't really be working for them. And, you know, maybe part of sales is to see the good in people and find, you know, be a likable person who likes other people mostly. There are some people I take an instant dislike to. Uh, but but mostly I think, it, isn't it about making, isn't it, they say it's about building relationships, but I think it's it's almost becoming a friend to that person and helping them, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I mean, winning friends and influencing people, I think is one of the, Oh yeah, classic Best sales book. books ever. Yeah, it's not it's but not in my top four, by the way, um, but it but it's it's up there. I mean, I really do think it's up there. It's a bit dated now, and it's a bit sexist and things, but there are some eternal principles in there, aren't there? About admiring other people and complimenting and being a good listener and all that well, stuff. And, I think, and, yeah. and also that underlying thing that people don't give a shit about you; they only care about themselves. And if you can get, if you can understand what they want and help them get it, you can probably get what you want along the way. Yes, yes, you uh, can't be successful is, unless you help other people to be successful. The, yeah. the thing about the the thing about salespeople, we were we were chatting before we started recording, was that the reason I think it doesn't have a status as a profession is because, you know. If, if you were a doctor and you were as unsuccessful as most salespeople, what you, would, you would actually be in the funeral business. Yes, nine and, patients out of ten died. <laughs> and it's just so many yeah. salespeople are just like, – they're just terrible at it and have no curiosity. You know, we were talking about asking a salesperson for their favorite sales book, which would make interviewing salespeople quite quick, although unsuccessful. Yes. I, if they don't read a book on sales, I don't want to employ them because you've got to study – what you do, whatever you do, you should study. If you're a graphic designer, you should read books on graphic design and you should look at the history and, you know, how did the great logos get created and all that. And you, because you should love your subject and, you know, whatever you're interested, I even read books on project management, you know, that's how sad I am. Uh, although recently I've been studying happiness. I'm really interested in that. And I've been reading books on that. But, but if a salesperson earns their living doing sales, they absolutely should read just one book a year. It's not much to ask, is it? And if you do that, you'll be ahead of all the other salespeople. And why would you not want to be great at what you do? You know, all the knowledge of the world is in books. And yeah, if people don't read books, then that's just, they, they're missing out aren't they? I mean, that's yeah. just sad. Although now, of course, instead of books, it's mostly online video courses and stuff, which, you know, and I'm not just trying to turn the subject back to myself. Um, but because I, I actually do think you can, I mean, an online course is one hour. 
approximately, usually an hour and a half, maybe. And a book is probably going to take you 20 hours to read, maybe, or 30. Um, yeah, well, lots so, of them on Audible are sort of 8 to 13. Yeah, so a book has got a lot more depth than an online course. So by all means, do an online course. You absolutely should. But, but really, books are still the thing in, in my mind. But I, I just wanted to it's just jump back ever so slightly because you, you were talking about you can't be successful unless you have other people to be successful. And my, my online project management course on LinkedIn Learning has had a million views. And it struck me just the other day that most people probably listen to it and immediately forget it or they're not really concentrating or maybe they get one or two things out of it and that's great. But I was thinking, what if one person in a thousand does everything I've told them? Out of a million people, that's a thousand projects out there that have been done really textbook all over the world. You know, maybe it's irrigation in Africa or something, or, you know, maybe Elon Musk did. I don't know. I don't know who's listened to my course. But isn't that awesome? So, funnily enough, the thing that gives me a thrill is not the fact that I get paid a few pence for each one that's viewed, which is good, but it's the fact that so many people have been reached. You know, so every day I do a training course and I talk to 20 people, but 20,000 people go online and watch my stuff. And that's a real thrill because I'm just making a small difference to the world like that, aren't I? You know, to reach that many people, I've got to be making a difference to the world. And I just think that's really great, you know, and, and you can't be successful unless you help other people. And I'm helping other people there. And I love that. Are you doing the same thing when you do leadership? Because you're helping managers be better managers, and so you're having yeah. that impact on them and their teams and their well, companies. Yeah, I know, yeah, absolutely. I think leadership has the biggest um, leverage of all because if, it, if I can make them better managers, and the world is so full of bad managers. I mean, a brief survey of my life, I've had one good boss and about 10 bad ones. It could be me. I think I might be not very manageable because I do argue back. And I think I was always destined to be self-employed, to be honest. But... Um, but nevertheless, I, I think good bosses are quite rare, um, mainly because people are promoted, you know, like the sales manager is usually the best salesperson. And yeah. that's, you know, not the, the criterion. And engineers you know, become the manager of the engineering department. And it's a totally different skill set. And whether it's the best or worst engineer, all engineers have certain qualities which are great for engineering and bad for management, really. So what, I, I what, makes, uh, what makes a great boss? When you're, when you're trying to take the people on your course and shape them, what, what are you trying to shape them into? Well, oh, my God, I could talk all day on leadership. Uh, <laughs> if I could have a couple of things, vision systems and people are the three things that a leader should do. Right. So they should provide a vision of where we're going somehow. Uh, and that's difficult. You know, where does that vision come from? And even if you're only halfway up, you should have a vision for your department. People want to know where they're going. You know, we, we don't have a vision at the moment because Boris is just coping with COVID. And, and where, what's the vision? You know, Theresa May was just a manager. She wasn't a leader. We didn't have a vision. Tony Blair said that we had a vision and we believed him. But then we discovered that it wasn't, there wasn't really one. You know, so we want a vision, don't we? We haven't had a vision since Margaret Thatcher had a vision. And a lot of people didn't like her vision, but at least she had one. Um, since then, you know, Gordon Brown, John Major. So, so vision's the first thing. Second thing a, a leader should do or a good manager is, is the systems. So just to stand back and look at 
How does it all fit together? Because it's a machine of people. Every company is a machine of people. So if something goes wrong, you know, what's wrong with the machine? It's not about bollocking somebody. It's there's something wrong in the design of the machine. And if people leave, you know, it's something wrong with the design of the machine. And by the way, people leave managers. They don't leave companies. Biggest reason why people leave is bad management. And it costs about 10 grand to replace a person. If you include all the sort of running down and the buildup of the new person and all the recruitment costs. And, you know, so that's another reason why managers are so important. So vision systems, looking at how standing back and systems thinking, which actually engineers are good at, and then the people. So the third thing a manager's got to do, they've got to recruit the right people and motivate the people and make sure the right people are in the right jobs and that they're happy and to keep them happy. And that's really difficult because people get bored and, you know, people don't always get on and a good team is made out of a group of people who are all different and that's going to lead to problems immediately. If you make everyone the same, there won't be a good team. They'll like each other, but they won't be a good team. So vision systems and people are, are the things that, leaders need to know about and they should be working on the machine not in the machine you know the last thing you should do is go right i'll just wade in and do it all myself so i think delegating is probably the most important skill and i think most bosses are bad at delegating by the way i'm bad at delegating um, because i'm a control freak and i want things done my way and i have a deep down belief that i can do it better than everyone else which is wrong of course but we all sort of have that belief and um I've delegated the garden to my wife, by the way. I did that. Um, but that's because I don't care about the garden. But, but delegating, that something, is- that I, <laughs> delegating <laughs> something that I care about, like, you know, delegating the, um, the filing of my CD collection. I mean, no one else is allowed near that. Oh, no. Um, so delegating something important that you care about is really difficult. Like delegating, for example, a sales visit. Imagine if you're the managing director, but you used to do sales. And you get a really important customer. Are you going to let your sales manager or sales director go in and do that? Or are you going to go, no, no, I'll do this one myself. You know, and to delegate something important is really hard. And, and I, I absolutely think that the world divides into the good and the bad delegators. And my customers, I know which ones are the good and the bad delegators. Because the good ones just say, come and do a talk on delegation, Chris. Boof. And the bad ones go, so what are you going to talk about? Okay, so why are you doing that? And can you do that in five minutes rather than 10? And it's like, don't tell me how to do my job. You know, you wouldn't get a bloke in to service your boiler and stand over him going, why are you using the pointy pliers? Why are you using a green wire? The answer is, you've paid me to do this because you don't know how to do it. So just let me do it. You know, why would somebody who doesn't know how to do it tell me how to do something that I do for a living? for thousands of pounds a day you know why would you and and then so all they do is interfere with my course make it worse and annoy me and waste their time so that's one type of customer and then the other customers just get me in and just trust me and and then when they've and then when they've diverted you from the thing you were going to do into a thing that you weren't going to do they then complain that it wasn't very good and the other thing about them is you can never get hold of them because when you ring up they're always busy interfering with somebody else and micromanaging somebody else you can't even they say we must have a meeting before the course and then you can't even get a meeting and so i know who the the good and the bad delegators are and if a manager ever says they've got a time management problem delegation is the first thing i would look at in fact i'm always fascinated when people come on a training course because when we have a coffee break um several of them will be on the phone 
And you hear them on the phone going, yeah, yeah, uh, charge him £25 for that. Yeah, charge him £25 uh, plus £3 delivery. And you think, can that person on the other end not even cope without you for a day? You know, why are you telling them whether to charge £20 or £25, you know? Or, or you hear them going, yes, it's in the blue folder on, on the end of the third shelf. And you think, why don't they know where the file is? You know, why can't you set it up? So really, every time somebody phones you on a training course, you should be thinking, I have failed. You know, why is this person having to phone me? I know a managing director I won't name, but I will say he runs a big company in Blandford Forum. And, uh, and and his name begins with no, but he he can't go on holiday because he has to check the payroll every week. So every Friday he has to look at everyone's name. There's about 100, 200 people or something in his company. Everyone's name and how much they're being paid. And he just checks they're being paid the right amount. And he, the managing director, does that. Now, he's got a finance director who is really brilliant, really good guy. And the finance director has a head of payroll who is a, is a lady I've met who I think is probably very good. And so this manager director doesn't trust the FD or the head of payroll. He personally has to check. And every week he finds nothing. You know, but every but it must, week. There, mu- there, it, there must be what? some trauma in his past. <laughs> must yeah. there? There must be, there must be something. Yeah. And, and but he can't go on are... holiday. He's, no, he's never been on holiday, you know. And I, you just think the worst that's going to happen is somebody will be paid an extra 50 quid and so what? Or somebody will pay an extra 10 grand and you'll notice and you'll have to claw it back from them, you know. But I mean, They'll really? notice. Yeah. So <laughs> I just find that, I find that incredible. And or, so I just think delegating is huge. Can, can you teach it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I absolutely think. Um, can I tell you a quick story about this, about when I failed sure. to teach somebody? Because um, <laughs> it's, it's funny and it's useful. So a, a friend of mine in London runs a company. He's, he employs about 100 people. And um, he got me in to do a time management course, which, by the way, he was too busy to come on. So mm, makes you think. And, uh, but it was all his managers. And he said, I can't, he said, I can't make it because a crisis has come up. I thought, oh, yeah. So at lunchtime, I went to chat to him in his office. And he's got the corner office overlooking the Gherkin in the middle of London. Beautiful view. And I sat on his visitor's chair eating my ham roll for lunch. And I was going to just chat because I've known him for years. And it was good to have a catch up. But I couldn't get a word in because there was an endless stream of people coming in through his office door to ask him questions. And I remember one guy brought in two cushions. They were sort of both different colours of red. And he said, hey, I'll call him, I'll call him Tony, because that's his name. <laughs> no, it's not his name. But he said, he said hey, Tony, um, what colour should we use for the Vodafone job? And Tony said, ooh, I would go for that one. And he said, thanks, Tony, and off he went. And after he'd gone, I said, what are you doing? You're the managing director. You shouldn't be choosing cushion colours. Although, by the way, he is a very good cushion colour chooser. I mean, he yeah. is. He set the company up and he's got a very good eye. But you've got to let that go now because you're meant to be talking about thinking about big things like how to sell the company off for 20 million quid and important stuff like that. So I said to him, you shouldn't be doing that. And he said, well, it only took a minute. And I said, yes, but it's death by a thousand cuts. You know, here comes the next guy, look. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right, really. Yeah, I probably should delegate more. And, and by the way, just going back to my vision systems and people, 
why are those cushions coming to him? And it's either a system problem that they don't record the colour at the beginning of the contract and have a swatch, a Pantone number you can look at, or it's a people problem because he doesn't have a person whose job that is, a person who can do that, you know, and obviously that wouldn't be their only job, but, you know, somebody should be in charge of choosing colours and it shouldn't be the managing director, should it? Or there is something about that problem that serves him. Like it makes him feel important and busy. Yeah, and he so enjoys he's trained, it. He's, yeah, he's so and he's gone back to something that's easy because he doesn't want to have to be the managing director because it's too hard and it's not very nice. Well, it he's, stops, he's playing. It's a, yeah, it stops him having difficult conversations with poor performers. Yes. And, yes. and so, he, so he's turned... And he's, strategy he's trained, and all that. And yeah, and he's trained the entire company mm. to be into learned hem- helplessness. Yes, learned helplessness. So, I love that phrase. So, yeah. So, so that so that he can he's got he's he can justify not doing all the difficult stuff. But then he complains to me that he works really long hours, and he claims to me that the company's not profitable enough, and he complains to me that he can't sell the company off because he wants to retire. He doesn't even enjoy his job anymore. He says he wants to retire with his twenty million, but you know, but he can't because they all need him. So I said to him. You should delegate more. And he said, I know. And I said, but to know and not do is to not know. At which point he told me to F off, (laughs) which was kind of fair enough because I'd probably pushed my luck too far. But I went back for one more bite. And this is why I wanted to tell you this story because I said to him, why don't I follow you around for a whole day and I'll just watch what you do and I'll say nothing except for you could have delegated that. And I'll just whisper into your ear constantly all day, you could have delegated that. And I'll do it for £800, special mate's rate. Do you think he took me up on it? <laughs> and the answer is, no, of course not. <laughs> he, he said, you've got to be joking, I'm not doing that. But would it have been a good idea? And I think it would have been brilliant. I think it would have been the most annoying day ever for him. But I think it would have rammed into his head how how much you can delegate. You absolutely can learn it. You can do it. And funny enough, I told this story to a friend of mine, Lorne Dampney, who runs Eco... Um, um, used to be called Eco-Composting, but it's called Eco-Recycling uh, now, I think. And he's a really good guy. And it's a really good company. And he said to me, Chris, I want you to do that for me. I want you to follow me around for a whole... Because he said, I know I'm a control freak, you know, because I love the company and I love the work and I'm good at it. And he said, I want to be better at golf. I want to spend more time playing golf. And I want you to help me to be better at delegating. So I did. I spent a whole day following him around. And it was fascinating. I sat in on his weekly meeting and I said to him, why do you need to... Afterwards, I said, why do you need to go to that meeting? They're all good people. You know, you can look at the minutes if you really want. And he went... Yeah, I suppose. And, and everything he did, I was like, why do you have to do that? <clears throat> and, and, and a few things, it became apparent there wasn't really a system. It was all in his head. So we said, right, make a system. In fact, delegate the making of the system to someone else. And there were a few things where the people couldn't quite do it, didn't know enough. And I said, well, who are you going to train up to do this? And he was like, well, I could probably train him, I suppose. I'll do that then. And now he is at the point where he plays golf most of the time. And he goes on holiday for, I set him the challenge to go on holiday to New Zealand for a whole month. I said, it's okay. You can look at your emails. Um, and he did. And he just said it was brilliant. It even rekindled his ailing sex life. Actually, no, I made that up. 
<laughs> but uh, but he said it's made him much happier and he's got time off and it's brilliant and he does he sees his wife every time every now and then occasionally now which he never used to see her at all i mean it was just endless work and he's got his wife's really nice and so it's really been good i think i think if i'm working with clients i think there are there are two things that need to be there for for me to believe i could make a difference one is they have to have the desire to change and i see that more often than the second one and the second one is prepared to do the work so that guy in the guy in london is like so sort of has the desire you know i'd like to lose weight so i bought a dieting book or, yeah you know, he's, I got, get oh, fit. he's got the desire I, he know, feels the yeah. pain but will he do the work it, it and i just think it i just think that something it's like it's like people who smoke and they say i know this is killing me yes but uh but but i like it the weird or, thing about him know, is he's really really clever He's incredibly clever. Um, he did a, an open university maths degree just for fun because he was bored while running a company. You know, he's ferociously clever. And yet he can't delegate red cushions. And, and isn't management fascinating? And that's why, you know, I don't think I'm that clever. I'm, I'm just peddling simple things that people need to know. And I, I just, I'm fascinated by why really clever people can't just be a good manager. I suppose no one's ever told them and they've just found themselves running a company and they think management is something they can just make up. And actually it's not, it's difficult. And, but you've only got to learn stuff from someone like me or a book or whatever and, and do it, but you've got to do it. And, and I think they perhaps think they're above it. I mean, I, I don't know. Oh, just, what's the difference for you between leadership and management? Oh, well, there are hundreds of books written about that. And in a way, it doesn't really matter. I actually think you have to do both. But if I had to answer it, I would say two things, vision and motivation. So I think a manager does the people and systems bit, mostly systems, but they don't really provide a vision. They're carrying out somebody else's vision. So I think providing a vision, but I also think being really motivational and I think, you know, a lot of managers are not very motivational and to, to sort of inspire people to do stuff. So, for example, I don't find Alan Sugar very motivational when I watch. Sorry, Alan, if you're listening to this, uh, when, when I watch The Apprentice, I just think, why would I want to be Alan's apprentice? I would not want to work for him because he just comes in and criticizes me. So I think he's a manager, whereas. Richard Branson, I do find very motivational. Some people don't like him, but I really like him. And I think his books are great. I really would recommend listening to him on Audible or whatever. And I find him really inspired. I would do anything for him. And I think um, that's the difference. I think Richard Branson is a leader because he is motivational. So I think motivation is the key. And I think motivation is not simple. And if I could pick one motivational thing, apart from providing a vision, I think it's actually thanking people. And Alan Sugar doesn't thank people. He just tells them off. And I mean, I know it's only a TV program. And outside of that, he's probably a really nice guy. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But I think what makes a big difference to people is a boss who appreciates them and thanks them. You know, I've, I've never been in a company where the staff have said, God, please tell them to stop praising me for doing a good job. <laughs> yes. It's driving me mad. And so yeah, when people yeah. say, well, people, sometimes people have said to me, well, I don't want to overdo it, you know, because people might get used to yeah, it. I don't and, want to overdo I said, it. I said, I said, look, honestly, until they beg you to stop, you've got room to do more. Yeah, yeah that's so true. <laughs> I mean, I did a job for two years where I was never thanked once. And maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I was really bad at that job. 
I don't think I was. And, you know, but and the point is, find something good. There's always something. And they just, they never thanked me. And, and, they, and I just gradually started to not really care, you know, because of that. And uh, one of the things I ask people when I'm doing a course on management or leadership is, when were you last thanked? And we go around the room. And it's fascinating because sometimes they say yesterday and sometimes they say a month ago and sometimes they say, I can't remember or never. And you just think, well, that's just appalling, isn't it? You know, because even if somebody's really useless, find something good and thank them and, gra- and build them up from there. But of course, they're not going to be that useless anyway. They're, they're good people. There must be something. And it's their boss. It's not them. It's their boss. That's the problem. But there's, uh, I came across somebody because I, I, I like the Gallup Q12 and one of the questions in there is, yes, have, you know, have, have, you been, have you been praised in the last seven days? It's and I came across list, somebody, yeah, I came across somebody who changed it to have you been praised in the last six months? And I oh. said, why did you change it? And they said, well, because we scored so poorly on the other question, the first, the first way the question was written. <laughs> just not even. I just changed the question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, low, that's low, amazing. Lower your bar. I get asked by engineers who want rules for everything, how often should I thank someone? And the you know the answer is well whenever you, you, they do something good. But if I had to come out with an answer, if I had to, I would say once a week. So, and I'm not saying you should say sorry, Dominic. I thanked you on Wednesday, so you'll have to wait till next week. Now, you know, I'm not saying that, of course. Or oh my God, it's Friday. I've got to thank Dominic before the week runs out. But I do think if you haven't thanked somebody for two or three weeks, that's too long. That's like you haven't watered a plant and it's drooping right over. It's nearly dead. So I think. As a rough guide, weekly. It might be twice in a week. It might be once in a fortnight, but roughly weekly. And if you, if you only thank people at Christmas, you're a crap boss. You know what I mean? And, and I think you should think through all the people you've got working for you and think, when did I last thank that person? And if you've got 10 people, that means you need to thank two people a day. Oh, dear. Yes, you do. That's your job. Two people a day. You know, that might take two whole minutes. And that means you have, to kn- you have to know what they're doing. Yes, you do. That's your job. You have to know that they've done something. Because you can't just say, Dominic, I think you're wonderful. Thanks for being great. You know, it's got to be, I noticed you put up those Christmas lights and it makes the room look really good. Thanks for that, Dominic. Or, you know, you told me about the rule of 78 earlier on and thanks for that because it was really useful. It should be a real thing they've done that you thank them for. And that means you have to know what they're doing. But, but that's okay. That's good for you. So it's a bit of an art, but not really. And anyone can learn to do it. And, and I really hope a few people listen to this podcast are thinking, oh, God, I only thank the people I like. You know, I don't <laughs> like the, or, or whatever. In which case, I was doing a talk on management to a bunch of managing directors. And I was talking about thanking. And, and there was this managing director frantically writing it all down. You could see him thinking, oh, my God. And he was making a note, you know, must thank my people every week. And you just think... I'm glad he's writing that down, but also it's slightly worrying when a managing director doesn't know that they have to thank their people. And, and every manager, of course, wherever they are in the tree, however small your company is, you may think that, oh, they know that I love them. But even if you only employ three people, you must thank all three of them every week. It's really important. And, and you can't absolve yourself by saying, if I don't say thanks, just feel comfortable knowing I must think you're doing a good job. That, yes. That's not. That, that's well, I haven't bought gone. them, so they, you know, <clears throat> that's thanks, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think management is a secret thing you do to people. 
So you don't secretly thank people as a way to manipulate them or whatever. You know, I, I think it would be absolutely fine to say to your team, I'm going to try and be a good boss and I'm going to try and thank you regularly for good things you've done. And I'm going to really, I really, I'm going to really mean it, you know, and I do think you're great, but I don't always tell you. So I'm going to try and tell you from now on. And I think absolutely it shouldn't be a secret thing that you do. And I've even made an eight point management charter. And if, if anybody wants to email me, Chris at chriscroft.com, I'll send you one. I'll just email it to you. And it says, Following Chris's management course, I will attempt to manage my team using the following principles. And it's got to keep people informed and to involve them in my decisions and, and to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing and to give people encouragement, even if they fail. And number eight is to let them know that I am aware of the occasions when they go the extra mile. And then it says, I will take any reminders from my team members that I've temporarily lapsed from the above in a constructive spirit. In fact, I will welcome them as a means of keeping me on course towards developing better habits. Signed, blah. And you have to sign it and stick it on your wall. Wouldn't that be good? You know, if you as a boss put that on your wall saying, I promise that I'm going to try and be a good boss from now on and put it on the wall because you'll see it every day thinking, oh, God, oh, I've got to remember to do these things. And they'll see it. And, and they'll see that you are doing your best, but they'll also see that it's actually difficult to be a really good boss. It is difficult. You know, when someone accidentally deletes all the customer records to go, that's okay, I'm here to help, you know, rather than you stupid, what have you done? You know, to remain positive can be difficult, for example. But I just think to say to your team, I'm going to try and be a good boss and help me to be a good boss. If I lapse, tell me to give them permission. Wouldn't that be an interesting experiment? So anybody, if anybody wants a copy of my eight point <laughs> thing to put on the wall, just email me after this. And Chris, what is it that either from your management career or your subsequent career as a, as a trainer, what is it you know now that might have been fun or useful to have known earlier? Um, can I have three things if they're all quite quick? Well, I was just thinking, if you'd stayed at Westland, you'd now be designing a rear wheel for a helicopter. Yeah, I would have. <laughs> and some of my friends still are, by the way. Um, but anyway, the first thing is just don't settle. Just don't settle for a bad boss. Don't settle for a bad job. If you're not happy, leave. I mean, you can try things first. You know, like you can say to your boss what you'd like to be different and things. But if you've tried everything and you're not happy, leave. I've stayed at jobs too long. Life's too short to do a job that's even mediocre. You know, if you don't love it, leave. The search must go on. That's the first thing that I've learned. The second thing is you can go self-employed, you know, and I was really frightened of going self-employed. I only went self-employed because I was made redundant at the university. You know, I was thinking of leaving and doing those courses for 500 quid. Um, and suddenly they just made us all redundant. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Would I have ever had the courage to go self-employed? Probably not. I'd probably still be working as a university lecturer now on 20 grand and now I get paid 10 times that. <laughs> so, you know, but it was just, you can do it. You can go self-employed. You have to learn selling, but learn selling and do it and go self-employed. Now, not everybody is suited to being self-employed, but if you think you would be and you're just frightened of it, don't be because it's, it's fine. It's actually more secure than having a boss because you've got lots of customers. You can lose one customer. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not like a boss can suddenly get rid of you or something. So you can go self-employed if you want to. 
is the second thing I've learned. And then the third thing I've learned is charge more. Just put your price up. Um, if, if you're in charge of pricing, if you're self-employed or you're, you know, you're running a small business, charge more. You should be at the price point where 50% of people can't afford you, right? So if 25% of people go, oh, I can't, I'm not paying that, you're still too cheap. Don't go, oh, I must cut our prices. Somebody can't afford us. You should put your price up till you get to the point where half of your customers can't afford you on price. And I can prove that with a spreadsheet. I haven't got time now. But just do a spreadsheet yourself of how much, what would happen if you put your price up and you lost. Just say, if we, you know, if we put our price to this, we would only get this proportion. And, and then work out what the total turnover and the profit would be from those different price points. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Am, am I, mean, I right? Oh, totally. I, I don't, I think most of the clients I work with think there's price elasticity in their marketplace and there isn't. Yeah. Um, we worked with one client and we, they put their price at 1% a month for the first year. And then they got, <laughs> That's brilliant. Then, then we got quite smug and they were, with the conversation was, well, maybe we do 5% a quarter. And then they went, no, people might notice that. So they went, but, but 1% was easy. So the, the second year they did 1.5% a month. <laughs> and the only, the only people who ever noticed were sales because the salespeople had to keep looking up the price for things. Yes. Because it wasn't, we'll it wasn't, a, it wasn't a round pricing. number anymore. Yeah. You know, and what if, if, if somebody rings up and their name begins with D, charge them an extra 30% and just see what happens. And I bet they all go, okay, then. And then you'll know it works and then you can do it for everyone. But know your worth because we tend to underestimate what we're worth. And then we, oh, I couldn't charge that much. Oh, I don't know if I'm good enough. And, you know, so know your worth, charge more. That's, I've learned that over the years. So that's three things. Don't settle. You can go self-employed, charge more. And what, uh, other than, I think you were saying, what is it, Chris Croft on project management? Is that the uh, best-selling, your best-selling book? Um, <laughs> but other than, well, other, yeah. other, other than that, what have you picked up along the way? That well, you I have got, was... I've got a book on Amazon, um, Time Management by Chris oh, Croft. Oh, Time Management, right. Okay. Which I'm really proud of. Every now and then you see it in the, in the 1P bin of shame. Um, <laughs> So it, the price varies between 1p and sort of 50 quid. But if you see it cheap on Amazon, get it. Um, I think it's a good book on time management. But um, I, I would say if you want to consume my stuff, I would get my free tip of the month. I would just go to chriscroft.com and um, sign up for my tip of the month. And it's free every month, free forever, and it'll never repeat. So It'll carry on even after I'm dead. So why would you not get my free tip of the month? Once a month, it's fascinating. I put a lot of effort in. It goes to 20,000 people. I put a lot of effort into writing it. And it's got all sorts of interesting things. It could be anything. Um, but if you want to actually buy something of mine, I probably would go to Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y, Udemy.com, and just have a look at some of my training courses. So my most recent one is called Planning Your Career and Your Life. And it's all about, how to work out what the best career might be for you and should you be self-employed? And I just thought, why not tackle the biggest question of all? I mean, it kind of, I kind of laughed as I made up the title of planning your career and your life. How big is that? But I am quite proud of that course. That's, it feels like a sort of life's work and it's only, it's 10 quid, you know, why would you not get that? I'll get three quid. So, you know, don't feel bad about it. But I, I think I would go to Udemy and look at that. Or if you've got LinkedIn Learning, obviously just look at all my stuff on there. What um, what books have you picked up along the way that you would recommend people? Well, my favourite book of all time, my business favourite book of all time, is a bit of an obscure one. It's The Goal. Uh, 
The Goal by Eli Goldratt. And it's, but people who are in production, people who make operations, people who, who are in factories love it. It's always their favorite book. So if you are running any kind of operations, and it doesn't have to be physical, it could be if you're running an office making websites or something, you have to read The Goal by Eli Goldratt. It's a badly written novel about a bloke who realizes why his factory is always late. Why does it take so long? Why is everything late? It's fascinating and brilliant. But I recently read another book that I thought was fantastic um, called Influence by Robert Cialdini. You'll have read this, Dominic. Influence by Robert Cialdini. And I think that is a really clever amusing, practical book on how to persuade people to do things. Um, and it's just brilliant. Influenced well, by Cialdini, I'd well, really recommend that. What's interesting is is he wrote it as a self-defense book so that if you wanted to avoid yes. being manipulated, then you should read his book. But actually, I know, and everyone's using it to it- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's ironic, isn't it? And he does keep saying, look out for this when it's done to you. But I wonder whether actually he's being a bit ingenuous there. And I just wonder whether it's an influencing book. And at the end, he thought, I feel a bit bad about this. So I'm going to add a few bits in about, so make sure it's not done to you um, because it's quite a powerful book. And yeah, and it, you could use it for bad purposes, but you shouldn't. Yeah. Um, I, if, if I was going to recommend really intellectual, amazing books, there's a book called The Fifth Discipline, which is fascinating. And The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge, S-E-N-G-E. It's a famous book. He, it's about the underlying systems that underpin everything. So, you know, you put your prices up and you sell less and you panic and you cut your prices and you sell a bit more and then you, you put your prices up again or, or you lurch between or whatever. And he talks about so, th- how things cause other things and how there are time lags. And people overreact because of time lags. And it's about understanding the systems that are underneath everything in life, actually. And he, he says there are about seven systems archetypes which explain everything. Everything from overpopulation, politics, global warming, right down to politics within companies, you know, why we don't charge more than we do. And everything is systems in the end. And it's an amazing book. I just think it's so clever. And that changed my thinking forever when I read that book. Just because, because he, says, he says that managers think they're in control making decisions. But actually, any manager would make the same, any half-decent manager would make the same decision that you've just made. And therefore, you're nothing. You're just predictable. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, so, so he says, don't just make decisions. Think about why it's happening. What is the underlying thing that's making you do that? You know, the water's too hot, so you turn the temperature down, obviously. But why is the water too hot? So, you know, so get to the real root of it and change the system so it doesn't keep happening. And if you understand the system, there's often a small leverage point, something small you can change, which will change how everything else works. So, you know, if you've got salespeople who keep complaining about the price and you just keep bollocking them or forcing them, you know, why do they have a problem with the price or or whatever? You know, so I I just think that's a fascinating book because managers are predictable and managers will think, right, we're not selling enough. What do we do? We'll cut the price. But that's not what you should do, you know. And so when you really get to the underlying understanding of systems, then you can and, and a company is only systems and people. You know. Yeah. So I thought the fifth discipline is an amazing book. It's not always an easy read, but it is 
it, it has got some diagrams in it, which I just look at the pictures really. But it, it is that is a great. But if I could have one more book, can I sneak in one more book? Yeah, which, yeah, sure. Uh, also changed my life. The Inner Game of Tennis. Have you seen The Inner Game of Tennis? <laughs> It's not really about tennis at all. He did one. He did a follow-up called The Inner Game of Work, which was also brilliant, actually. But his original book, The Inner Game of Tennis, is brilliant. And if I can just tell you one thing I learned from that, he said, there are three reasons why you might play tennis, and two of them are totally false. And these are reasons why you would do anything, not just play tennis. And the first one is mastery. He said, forget trying to master tennis. You never will. Even Federer hasn't done that. And forget trying to master anything. Because you won't. It'll just drive you mad. Forget trying to master selling. It'll just drive you mad. You'll never master it. The second false reason to play tennis or do anything is competition. He said, forget trying to beat other people. Even Federer loses sometimes, you know. Um, Forget trying to sell more than the next salesperson because that's just a road to nowhere, really, because, you know, you never will. And, And if you do, what do you do then? You know, so he said competition is not a reason to do anything. Uh, I mean, you know, you could win tennis by playing people who are useless constantly, just beating people who are useless. But would that really mean anything? You know, you want to have a good close game and you want to lose 50% of your games, don't you? So forget competition. So not mastery, not competition. So why would you play tennis? The third reason is just to enjoy it, just to enjoy the shot. Just to think, ooh, that went down the line perfectly that one time and enjoy the you know, the sun shining and having and laughing at your opponent who's just done a really bad shot or whatever. And it's the same with selling. Do it because you enjoy it. Do it because you meet people and become their friend and you help them and you have a laugh and, and you get the sale and it feels good. And, you know, do it because you enjoy it. Don't do it for competition and don't do it for mastery. And I thought that's fascinating, isn't it? So the inner game of tennis is it's only a little book. You can get it secondhand for 5p on Amazon and, uh, and it's great. Chris, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. It's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you this afternoon. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, it's been it's been a pleasure back. Um, yeah, aren't you going to ask me something? I'd recommend that the listeners could do that they could start today. Okay, what uh, what's your top tip then? I would say have personal goals. You have to know what your goals are in life. What do you want to achieve? next year and in the next five or 10 years, you know, writing down my goals has changed my life more than anything else. That piece of paper where I first wrote down my goals because a mate of mine told me it was a good idea. And I did that piece of paper changed my life more than much more than a Cambridge degree, which is just nothing. And, and an MBA, I did that. It didn't make any difference really, but writing down my goals. Oh my God. Would you agree? Uh, Have you got goals written down? I bet you have. I always have a set of goals written down. And, yeah, you know, you're that sort of start, guy. I knew you would. Yeah. When we start with clients, that's what we do. We say, where are we going to try and get to in three years? Let's go there. Let's get the leadership team aligned on where we're going. Because otherwise, what, where are you going? What are you doing? And, and I, I actually think the reason why goals come true, I bet, I bet you don't know why it works. It doesn't matter why it works. I mean, just do it. But do you know why it works? I I mean, I've made up a theory about this, which I'm going to have to tell you now, very briefly, because I don't know how long this podcast is allowed to be. But uh, why do you think writing down goals works? Some people write them down and put them underneath their pillow because they think then the universe will impact on them. It's actually that I, I suspect what happens is subconsciously, once you've decided on a path, 
you start make you start making marginal decisions that you think that you don't even know that you've made. Yes, I I think probably two thirds of it is that it's like setting sat nav. It tells you what to every junction, which direction do I go. And setting goals, I think it's a fairly weak sat-nav. I think half the time you forget the goals and you don't. But even a fairly weak sat-nav that got it right half the time would get you there, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and, and if, you know, if it was like random at some junctions, but sat-nav at others, you'd get there. And so I, I think absolutely we make decisions every day without realizing. And our subconscious has goals now and it takes us in that direction. Whereas most people are just drifting through life. But I think the other reason, not only does it send you in the right direction, but it makes you go faster because you're more disciplined um because if you've got if you've got a goal in mind you've got something to make you think right i'm going to do this you know so why shouldn't i just look at facebook all day or instagram why shouldn't i just look at you know pictures of glamorous people in swimwear or something on instagram all day and the answer is because i've got goals i've got stuff i want to do but if you've got no goals then why bother to do anything you know, why? So I think self-discipline comes from having goals. If you look at Olympic athletes who train like crazy, they're doing it because they've got the gold medal in their mind. You know, if they just wanted to be good at swimming, why would they bother? So I, I absolutely think that goals give you a direction and they make you go faster because they make you more disciplined and more assertive, actually, as well. Don't get in the way of me because I've got goals I've got to get to. So I, I'm not going to I'm going to say no to that because I've got a goal. So I think it makes you more disciplined and more assertive as well as giving you direction. But, you know, it doesn't matter because who cares? They work. And every time I write stuff down, it comes true. Every time. It's really weird. And I, I still can't believe it. But every year I do it, every year I write down more goals, every year they happen. I mean, my list is huge now. Now I've realized it works. You know, I don't know whether the Kylie Minogue goal is going to come true, but, <laughs> but, but all the others, um, yeah, whatever I write down happens. So, um, <laughs> so I would absolutely say that's something somebody could do right now. It would only take you five minutes. Just sit down and write that list. And you can refine it, of course, over the coming weeks. But just sit down and write what do you, what do you want to achieve, but also what do you like doing that you'd like to do more of? You know, I'd like to sit in a restaurant with my friends eating curry more, you know, when this stupid virus has gone. You know, so what do you like doing? I, I actually like walking on the beach. So, I'm, you know, I've got a goal to do that more often and, and to be on foreign beaches in hot sunshine, you know. And so whatever you like doing, as well as what you want to achieve, write it down. And I think you should have goals for home and work as well, by the way. Enjoy and achieve at home and at work. All four combinations as well. Not just enjoy at home and achieve at work. But what do you enjoy at work that you want to do more of? And what do you want to achieve outside work as well? So enjoy and achieve at home and at work. Have goals for all four of those. And that's what I think a person can do. And you can do those. You can do it. Just write it down and they will happen. It's weird, but it works. <laughs> Chris, thanks very much indeed <laughs> for your time today. It sounds like it's a been, finishing line, doesn't it's it? Been, it's, been, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. I'm honoured to be asked. And because uh, you've had some great people on this podcast and it's a, it's a good one. So thank you for having me.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.